When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. When the University of California at Berkeley went through the speech controversies in the fall of 2017, the Chancellor convened a group of faculty, students and staff to think about the best ways to handle these events. The Dean of the School of Education, Professor Prudence Carter, a sociologist, was the co-chair of that group. They held public meetings, listened to many, many voices and perspectives from members of the community, and tried to find a way to move forward. Prudence Carter is a sociologist. She's invested in evidence-based research and thinks we should make distinctions between mere opinion and truth that is established by the expertise of experts. She's also very mindful that conservative students on a progressive campus such as the University of California might feel not adequately heard. She understands where they're coming from, but also wants to warn against false equivalencies about people feeling suppressed. I spoke with her in September of 2018. Good morning, and thank you today. I'm really excited. I'm speaking with Dean Prudence Carter, who is the Dean of the Graduate School of Education at the University of California at Berkeley. First of all, thank you for making time to be on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Thank, thank you for having me. Thank you. So, so I just wanted to point out, I've been reading as much of your work as I can, and I've been really just so taken with it. You're a sociologist. I'll name some of your books because I think it's really important for listeners, sort of where your work comes out of. So your award-winning book, Keeping It Real, School Success Beyond Black and White, which as much as I've read is trying to explain that a gap in achievement is usually really a gap in opportunity and what this country can do to create equality, conditions of equality in education. You have mm -hmm. a couple other books, Closing the Opportunity Gap, which is also a comparative study with South African and American school systems and opportunities, and then Stubborn Roots. So those books position you very well, I think, in the role you had at Berkeley, and I would love to hear a little bit more that you were the co-chair with your colleague Jay Wallace, who I've also spoken with, on the Commission for Free Speech at Berkeley. And now it's 2018, you've had all your students arrive back, right, on campus. <laughs> it's, a, it's a busy fall, and you have gone through over a year of listening to people in the community and trying to account for all the different voices on these issues that have kind of taken the nation's attention. Right. And so I would, I would just love to hear how, when you went into that process for people to understand 
you provided a really open forum, right, for people to say what happened here at Berkeley and how can we move forward in a productive way for everyone. Yes, I would call it a very strongly democratic process. Our charge was to listen to various constituencies in the Berkeley community and to then make recommendations to the chancellor and to the senior leadership team about ways we could improve our processes on campus as we address visitors coming to speak. And so there were several open fora for members of the community, students, faculty, and staff to come in and to say what they had to say about the various incidents, the various events that had occurred, and also to give their insight and feedback about and recommendations to the commission about what we would want to say in the report to the chancellor and her, her cabinet. So um, it was a very informative process for us. It was a very emotional process, um, primarily because many of the people who were affected by the events spoke quite forcefully, spoke quite emphatically, and spoke quite from the heart emotionally, I, I would say expressively, about what it meant for them to have these various events occur. And what do you think was the, or is the feeling on campus? I mean, Berkeley is such a critical place for everyone, and I've been speaking to so many people at different universities. It sort of should exemplify the way in which we as a democracy can move forward together, right? So you're, pro you're saying the process itself was an instance of that. How do you create a space wide enough and inclusive enough to contain these strong emotions, these strong feelings about things that happen on campus? Well, and that's actually our ultimate goal as an institution of higher learning, as an epicenter of free speech here at Berkeley. I mean, there is a paradox in some ways that there are some contradictions that we are grappling with as a public institution. And one of the things that came out of this for me is that having been, having spent my most of my academic career in private elite institutions, to come to a public institution where the questions and the grappling are slightly different because the mandates of public funding. Funding. And so one of the things that we had to grapple with here was we are a campus that's continuously struggling with or grappling rather with how to be a fully inclusive campus. And we're a campus that is committed to free speech and welcoming students and perspectives that span the ideological spectrum. At the same time, we have to grapple with some moral and ethical questions, right? Can you be fully tolerant? of intolerant views. And that is really the big question. I think that was the one that was the pickle, that was the big elephant in the room. That's the one we grapple with in the report. Obviously, for various reasons, there's much more pressure on the University of California, Berkeley, as a public institution to allow certain speakers that our private peers may not even consider are they may not think about it, or, or they could just say no for various reasons. There are ways we, in which we can't say no. And at the same time, we want to be mindful that we're an institution of higher learning, wanting to expose our students to various paradigms, perspectives, ways of thinking, different kinds of research. And so one of the, I think the thing that comes out of this process for us is how to reconcile being a place that exemplifies one of inclusion, which includes inclusiveness of perspectives with which I wouldn't agree as a progressive scholar, and also being a place where our students who come from historically 
underrepresented or marginalized or oppressed backgrounds would not feel severely threatened and can actually, their emotional and academic well-being wouldn't be severely threatened by the people who come on campus. If we can stay with this, I mean, you're really laying this out in a very clear way. There's kind of an inclusiveness that means two things for you. You just said it's, first of all, welcoming, but actually creates the same conditions for everyone to study, do research, etc., and be a part of the community at Berkeley. And then also inclusive of views that you may not agree with. But this this becomes complicated. So the challenge is between this idea of inclusion as both a kind of intellectual conceit that we look at views that we don't agree with at all and we all have different opinions. That's the greatness of a school such as Berkeley, so many different schools of thought. But the Mm -hmm. other part of inclusion goes to what makes up a community and can there be things introduced that actually interfere with what the community is supposed to be? Well, here's the conundrum for me. It's kind of, and I read a comedian said this the other day. It says, if your perspective is that I shouldn't be alive or you want to kill me, and then the demand is that I, you know, the orthodox, their ideology around free speech is that I invite you to sit at the table with me when you want to kill me, and I need to listen to you about why you want to kill me. That's a serious conundrum, and I think that's where we are in the United States right now. That's where we are in various parts of the world, actually. How do you grapple? And so I think what I'm thinking about as a scholar and as a person, just a a person who wants to be humane in the world, to be fully inclusive, but how to think about how you differentiate between that which is real knowledge and which is knowledge generative and knowledge building and that which is just pure spite. And I think what happens is that we are now being forced by many people who come from various camps that are just ideologically dark and they're shrouding their spite under the cover of being knowledge generative or being a different perspective or being a different way of forcing us to seek truth. And I don't think all ideas are about truth. Some ideas just come from dark places, ideologically laden places, of self-interested places, places that want to reproduce social hierarchies where some are in and some are out, some are up and some are down, some are superior and some are inferior. And so I have a hard time with the unfettered view, and I will just put that, and I think that's part of one of the reasons that I'm probably, I would say, I, you know, I have to be reflexive and say that I am not fully an avowed, unorthodox free speech person, okay. because not all speech particularly in the center of higher learning, is about ideas, well, is about knowledge generation. I can stay with what you just said. It's, so there is yeah. a purpose for speech in higher education. It's supposed to generate knowledge or be knowledge. If it's cloaked in that but actually has the opposite effect, it's supposed to destroy knowledge or attack people, or as you call it, is spiteful. It's interesting, I've talked to so many people, a lot of constitutional scholars, the deans of law schools, who all agree with you that free speech isn't an absolute, that there is speech yes. that actually contradicts this premise that there's freedom behind it, actually. They tease it apart right. in a different way. So as a, right. as a dean of a graduate school, it's your role to generate a lot of talk, and you, you want to give a direction then to people. So the controversy at Berkeley are students inviting speakers for who knows what reason. You know, maybe they want to provoke. Maybe they genuinely feel there's something that needs to be discussed in America. But you alluded to this, that we're living through a time right now where these controversies are flaring up. I sometimes think, 
we lived through these controversies before and before and before. But they may be... Do you think these issues are different from what they were like in the 90s or in the 60s? And there's something else right now also at stake. But what's happening? As a sociologist, I believe we've reached what I consider kind of a threshold of social tolerance. I think the 1960s was a period where we went from zero to one. And it was kind of a basic, we, we attained in the society more of a fundamental basic right to equality for various groups, for, for people, for racial and ethnic groups, for women, um, for LGBTQ folks, which didn't really happen in the 60s. And I think once we've reached a basic level of equality, it gets really, really complicated for many people in the world. Because they don't, the basic level is not equity, particularly when we're talking about the allocation or distribution of resources in our world, right? And when you look at the data, the data in this world from education to wealth to income to housing, they are unequivocal about the non-normative distribution of resources in this world, in U.S. society. And that's a fact, but people still think we have equality. Can you say, can you, can I, as a sociologist, tell me what the non-normative distribution of resources, so can you break so, that down a little bit? Sure. So when you talk about the allocation, when we think about educational outcomes in terms of high school graduation, college going, college completion, when we think about the fact that according to the last census and current population studies, that among young people 18 and younger, youth 18 and younger, among African-American, Latino, Latina, Latinx, and Native American students, nearly two-thirds of those students, those young people, live within 200% of the poverty line. When it comes to white and Asian students on average in this country, less than a third live within 200% of the poverty line. That's not normal. If the distribution of poverty was more normalized, you'd actually see similar distributions across all racialized groups. That's what I mean is non-normative. It is too patterned, and it's patterned, I argue, it's patterned for those groups that have historically had more difficult times being incorporated in this country, where the state has had a more difficult time incorporating them in the country. Those who are the descendants of slaves, conquests, and settler colonialism or genocide. So and then you're saying what happened in the 60s, there's a kind of push for political equality, great achievements, but what's lagging behind is the lived lives of people that actually the resources or opportunities are not moving in sync. It's not overnight you have legislation, you have you know movements, you have laws, and then suddenly things are equal in this other sense. Exactly. And what happened is when the 60s came, the laws created a certain level of civil rights access, equality, but the laws did not account for the accumulation of disadvantage that had already begun. So we use metaphors around running or, you know, when you think about it, if you have generations of families that are already 15 to 20 meters ahead in terms of their resources, and you have others that are starting at the starting line, and you say, now go, Who's going to reach the starting line quicker? More, you know. So it's not logical or rational what we're saying, which is why people say equality is not the same as equity. The country has never actually made up for how far behind African Americans, Native Americans, and Latinos 
in this country, all many of whom are the descendants of those for those historical processes. They're descendants of those who suffered from those historical processes. We never actually accommodated that. And so if we can account for that, we never made reparations. That's a very politically loaded uh, term, but that's what I mean. And so you can actually, historians, political scientists, and sociologists can actually show how there was an accumulation of resources from the 18th and 19th century that has followed us into the 21st century that has benefited those who've had privilege in society historically and not benefited those who didn't have privilege. So when I say non-normative, when I hear people come in and they're talking about groups, particularly black and brown folks, and they're talking about them in a vein as if we all started off on the same historical footing, or they disavow the history. They want to disavow the history. I find it highly problematic because there's so much evidence that shows otherwise. And so that I'm trying to figure out what are our students learning. And what I do think it is cultivating, because we live in the land of individualism, it's really, I think, that ideology is trying to cultivate an ethos of just pure, unfettered self-interest. It's not about how we care about others, how we care about collectively the public or the common good. It's about how we consume things for our own personal advancement. And I think that's just a challenge in the U.S. right, right now. It's a great analysis. I think it's really helpful. And you're saying two things. There's an assumption that equality can be created by political fiat overnight. Here it is. And secondly, there's a kind of denial of history of where people come from. And you're saying as a sociologist, as a historian, you can empirically actually show this. It is not just something one assumes. It is actually, you can show and prove this. Then you have the students coming to the university, as you're saying, and then the idea of the university is to create opportunities that not everybody comes already with the same opportunities. So once they arrive at Berkeley, what was your sense of the students making sense of all these events? When people come who espouse very different views from what you just said. Well, this was the ironic thing, right? Because here at Berkeley, we're also trying to be a public university that includes, that welcomes its state population, students from around the nation. And we're so proud of the fact of stating that we have so many first-generation college-going students here. We have a significant number. We have a significant number of students who've never, whose families have never really been in these kinds of educational environments. And then they come on these campuses, and ironically, they hear the kind of stuff that is spewed. And it's like, whoa, is this really a place for me? And that's what we heard a lot of. Okay. It's like there's a significant irony... I have been socialized and cultivated to aspire to be at a place like Berkeley. And when I come to a place like Berkeley, I'm going to have to be exposed to this environment where the people say I'm not supposed to be here. I shouldn't be here or I'm not welcomed here. Not all, but this is a certain kind of marginalized fringe that I would say who would say that. And so how do you grapple with that? Now, of course. There are those in the world who say that these kinds of students who just have to have a stronger backbone don't be a snowflake and you have to be strong enough and have the fortitude enough to endure different kinds of perspectives. I think you have to be strong enough to endure different kinds of perspectives about various phenomenon, about various ideas. You do not have to come to a campus where you have to endure ad hominem attacks. And that's the danger, right? I think, you know, one of the things that we heard from conservative students who, who testified at our town halls 
was that they didn't feel welcome here, that Berkeley was entirely too liberal. And what if you do have a conservative perspective? I actually have some empathy and some compassion for that perspective. What I don't have empathy for is the representation of conservative ideals and, and, and viewpoints. Because it's one thing to bring persons on who don't really have much to say to advance your knowledge and who are just really there for show. It's another thing to actually bring thought leaders, right. to bring thinkers, to bring scholars who are actually going to help you to advance your perspective or to engage. And so I think one of the big things for us is there's a little bit of work to be done on both sides, on multiple sides, I should say, which is about how to actually more effectively treat, teach our students how to critically engage around ideas and not around persons, not around bodies, not around beings, not around personhood, right? We have to teach our students also to be comfortable with difference. I appreciate it being on this commission because, you know, I actually have to force myself sometimes to read things that are really hard for me spiritually, but I need to know what, what the ideas are out there. Um, but I'm only going to read things that I think are, are that are steeped in some kind of research or some some archival research or some empirical research where I know that there's some work done. I'm not interested in edutainment, which is what I call faux edutainment. People who are just out there for show and just spewing what their opinions are. That's not based in anything. Right. That's it. So you're keeping you're maintaining a standard, and and what you're saying is the students were actually saying, and I'm interested in sort of this, is what you just described, and I've listened to a lot of students who I've also felt have said, we are not here to arrive, to be admitted. It's a very competitive process to get to the University of California at Berkeley. You have these fantastic programs, the bridge programs. A lot of kids are coming right. who wouldn't, who family hadn't gone to college. They've worked so incredibly hard, and right. then they're supposed to sit there and have someone tell them, you don't belong here. Right. You don't even belong in society. And right. this is, as you're saying, not an intellectual abstract exercise. This yeah. goes to some other place. I'm kind yes. of, we could stay with this for a moment because I think this is so important for people to grapple with that this interferes with what the university is, not because they're a little sensitive, they have emotions, but this really interferes, interferes directly. And I think it's hard for people to grasp that such a school as Berkeley, it's so difficult to get in. You work so incredibly hard. I mean, the, the kids you've just admitted worked so hard. I right. do know this. My son is a freshman there. He's been there for two weeks now, so I'm quite aware of this. And I Congratulations. Was Thank you. And I was a freshman at Berkeley 31 years ago. Yeah. And if you arrive, you're not saying, let's be super sweet and soft on them. Actually, let's challenge them intellectually. Let's say you have risen to this standard. We can keep you here. But right. there's another message that you're just differentiating that's not about empirical research. That's not intellectual. That's just saying you don't belong. Yes. Right? In the commission, you heard this. Did people sort of got this differentiation between what you call it edutainment, right? Those speakers who just come to get into the news, I guess, right? Yes, yes. I think, you know, this is one of those things where I'm just speculating. I don't have the evidence. I think what the university has experienced is something that's parallel to the national picture in some way. There is a population of disaffected students who happen to be quite conservative, who decided to get attention by any means necessary, right? Because they do feel so hyper-marginalized because they're in the critical minority. They're on a very literal, they're on a campus that is 
progressive, that's open, that's inclusive, that's democratic. And in some ways, if you've been in a minority position, which I have in triple, double, quadruple ways, you can understand protest. But I think the inherent danger is that their protest is steeped in something that's not quite grounded. And I don't know who's advising or supervising. What did come to our attention is that students were being, in some ways, manipulated by outside political forces. And I think if there was a way that there was more mentorship from conservative scholars, from conservative thought leaders who are not about debasing other people, but advancing ideas that are different around fiscal policy or ideas around science and climate. I mean, you know, you can accept that there are different perspectives on different kinds of outcomes around religion, but I think it's about the pairing. It's about the coupling. And so to answer your question, these students fell into a hole. And at the same time, I could feel their frustration that they needed a space to feel some valorization of their perspective. And so we did try very hard to be able to insert that we were going to be intolerant even of the lack of inclusiveness of conservative perspectives. But we were not going to be tolerant, per se, of perspectives that are antithetical to our communities, our principles of inclusion and community. And so it's such a nuanced argument to have to make this. It doesn't come easy trying to explain that to the public. And I think what it takes is probably for popular writers to translate some of the scholarly jargon around the differences in concepts that we're talking about right now, right? It's one idea to just spew stereotypes. Stereotypes are not strongly supported or substantiated ideas. It's not necessarily knowledge. It's one idea to just spew your mere opinion. Opinion is not fact, right? Okay, but we're living in a world today where people's ideas of what facts are, what knowledge are, are being really, really tested. In many ways, people say we're living in a post-truth society. What? I, I don't even know what that means. I mean, I can't believe that someone could actually get on national TV and say the truth is not the truth. And so, you know, when we start talking about it, I think there's so much work we have to do around basic ideas right now. It's regressive because you really thought that human society in the academy that we actually got to a certain place. But what I think we're experiencing is some manifestation of frustration in the wider world coupled with antipathy and spite and anger, so all that personal messiness. And people have to suspend that if they really want to have some full tolerance and inclusion for their ideas. And it's just pulling the poles apart. It's pulling the poles apart. So I don't know. We have work to do. We encouraged in the the report for faculty to think more constructively about how to engage across these lines, these boundaries, to think about different pedagogical techniques and tools they could use to help students to be able to parse out, to help students to be able to differentiate from their mere opinion versus what's knowledge generating and knowledge based. So, yeah, I don't a, know if I've answered this the question. This is a great explanation of what you just yeah. said, the difficulty of explaining what you mean by there's their conservative viewpoints, their policy and political differences, opinions that can be very, very extreme. But there's yeah. still a step into a space. And you said a word earlier that I want to refer to. You said spiritually, 
if it debases other people, if it's grounded in nothing actually but stereotype, right. no research, no knowledge, nothing close to the truth, there it touches on something else. And two things happen. The university doesn't really engage with that kind of thought because there's lots of it out there, but we don't invite people who are not qualified. And right. it touches on... So, I, But I really liked hearing you saying you have empathy for the conservative students who are feeling we're not being heard or listened to. And you're saying we have to create space under the assumption that this is actually leading all of us to move forward and understand things better and contributing to the truth and knowledge and not just to disrupt this exercise of being together. And right. I think that's very hard, I think, for what you said, that also what you said it's hard for people to grasp that there's, there are ways that ideas could come into a room that someone could feel, I can't participate on equal terms because I constantly have to defend being here. But my right. job is to do physics or to do theology or to do the history of higher education or sociology and not to argue why I'm in the room based on who I am. And I right. think this is, this is the tricky thing where universities have gotten there and where we have to sort of pull back and say some things are not conducive to actually learning. It's like you can't go into a classroom and single out people by groups and say the women or these people or those people or the men, they shouldn't speak today. That's just mm -hmm. not conceivable for you. Set all, we set all sorts of expectations. Right. So I think what you're saying is there's an expectation for universities to do a little better right now and the pressure is from the outside world, as you're saying, sociologically speaking. We live mm -hmm. in a country right now where... People, as you say, go on national television who are elected leaders or appointed and saying the facts are not the facts. That's right. And, and then people say, no, these are the proven facts. And you say, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> I have other facts now. Right. It's very hard for universities. Universities would say, well, this is just nonsense. You cannot just come into a class and say what, or into a lecture hall and say whatever you want. But mm -hmm. the students, I think the students are kind of manifesting also this anxiety for us, which is a real anxiety because it unsettles things in our nation. If our right. leaders are telling us falsehood, what are we supposed to do, actually? Yes. Yes. It's one of those things. Here's where, you know, not to get too academic on you, but when you start to think about these notions of post, the suffix of the prefix of post, right? To think about postmodern, post truth, it's like this idea that anything goes. There is no objective standard, there's no objective truth. In the university, I would argue and suggest to you that the assumption a priori has to be that everyone who's in that classroom, they belong. They are here. Every last one of you is on equal footing in this classroom. They were accepted and admitted to be a part of a community of higher learning, of academic growth and development, and that we don't even need to argue that point. And so to have to go into a classroom and a group of students, a subset, have to actually be defending that is so problematic. I actually think that has to be left outside the door. The point is actually to move forward and to add and to augment to the knowledge that we have to refine. You can refute, you can challenge. But one thing that is not is a no-no that should be a given is that everyone has a right to belong in that classroom. And so that's that's utterly regressive to me if we have students in universities right now having to just do that basic work. Because then that is pre-1960s, right? 
we're now pre-civil rights at that point. We've gone way back to the plantation. We've gone back to, you know, the eras when people were put in camps. I mean, it's all kinds of things that you don't even have a right to, you're not my equal. And so that, in some ways, it belies when people say, we believe in equality. And you say but then this, you say those things. And you, sorry, and you're saying this basic work is this requirement which has come back for people to say, I have to explain and justify to you, and you're going to decide whether I'm right or not, whether I belong here, whether I'm an yeah. equal person to you, which of course is an impossible demand. As everybody from, I mean, you know, we can, anybody we can cite said, this is an absurd demand to demand of me that I prove my humanity to you, and you're going to decide whether I'm, I'm going to get this point or not. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not just students. It's also faculty, some faculty on campuses who have those proclivities to think about students. So I'm also just a little bit worried about the work. I think the work has to be done with faculty. We understand that, too, as well as students. I don't think that we're all because there are a number of faculty on campuses like Berkeley who also believe some of the things that we've talked about and problematized. Can I I ask you one more thing? I asked Jay Wallace this as well. You made these recommendations for Berkeley to move forward. Really productive, I thought. And there was Mm -hmm. one point I was quite interested in. You said the chancellor should make very strong counter speech or say, express the values of Berkeley when someone like that comes for the students to understand, which is always a big tension in these speech controversies that you're supposed to invite somebody, but then say, we completely disagree with this viewpoint. We just tolerate their right to speak. It's a very legalistic distinction. And then I thought, okay, is it really going to be enough to just say a few things? And I asked your colleague, uh, Jay, do there have to be programs in place, policies, actually a commitment to this equality that goes beyond just saying something, which I'm not pointing out to your chancellor, but as I say, for leaders or teachers to say, I'm truly committed to this, and I can demonstrate this for example, by having policies, resources, programs that support everyone. Not just, I believe in equality because it's a good thing or because I'm an American or, you know, so. Right. Words are empty if they're not backed by practice, right? And so I think you're absolutely right, Ulrich, that what we need is our chancellor, I think she's very committed to it, and our recommendation was not just for her to say things. It is actually, we recommend that there are actual, this change in practice. Interestingly, a number of universities, as they have had to grapple with the free speech events or the events that kind of challenged the ideals of free speech with some of these outside agitators, they did come up with counter-programming. And that's really what we talked about in the report. We talked about activities that would actually foster or facilitate community that would demonstrate deep inclusion and incorporation and welcoming, as opposed to in showing what that looks like, as opposed to these kinds of events that want to be exclusive and denialist and those kinds of things. And so you're absolutely right. I want to go back to one much earlier point you made about the kind of distribution of resources, and it isn't just simple equity, saying should be attached to this. You could do counter-programming, strong statements, and then do there have to be resources which are also under legislative attack, as we know, sort of real programs. I looked at this. I looked this up. So you, if, if a university such as Berkeley or any university spends $700,000 on an event, regardless of why this is the case, who caused this cost, 
I think you could sponsor at least 51 students to study at Berkeley for their freshman term from California who haven't, whose right. parents didn't go to college. So I thought that's a lot of students. That would be very meaningful. Right. You have a big freshman cohort. You could say this is the free speech cohort. This is what we're investing in. So it's, right. the resources part, I think it's connected on a level that's not quite clear. And But people talk about these numbers a lot. Right. I mean, I think you're referring, when you say the $700,000, you're, you're referring to the amount of money that the university expended to right. protect the campus of security right. for these events, right? I mean, I don't think we had a choice. We didn't have a choice if we had to because the campus had to protect its students. We did not want to go the way of the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, what happened in Charlottesville. We kept that in the back of our minds. It was it was very planful. It was coordinated. Um, we knew, we had been warned that there, were going to be, there was going to be outside agitation on multiple sides. And our primary goal was to keep our community safe. And, and so that cost us, right? Now, the question for us on the table right now is if we do a feasibility analysis, if it should happen in the future that some kind of controversial speakers would come to campus and we do feasibility analysis around the, the uh, and do analysis around what it would cost and it's past a certain threshold, can we use that as a guideline? Can we set up some guidelines about how much we would actually spend, what our maximum is, without because we would go broke, we can't afford to, to do this. And I think that there's, you know, the legal scholars like Erwin Sherman Rinsky and others are saying that there is possibility that we could do that. It has to, you know, obviously our university council would have to grapple with it because the reality is these are people who are looking to find our points of vulnerability. They would countersue anything that we put into place. And we're a public institution that's already struggling with limited resources. But we were willing to prioritize, and I stand by the chancellor on this, we were willing to prioritize not losing one life to this. Right. And so if it cost us a million dollars, we were going to pay for it. And so I think we got tested. And that's so unfortunate. And I pray that this was the last of it, that we won't have to deal with this, that this moment has passed. Because, it, you know, interestingly, for one of the speakers who came, he had been here not even two years prior and barely 50 people showed up. And I, it wasn't even, a, I don't know, I, maybe it was more than 50, but it was a very small crowd, and we didn't even need security for it. And then you fast forward post-November 2016, and there are protest crowds, and we've really spent all this money on that particular event, coupled with another, a few, uh, one other. And I thought to myself, this is more than about the speaker. This is about where we are as a nation right now. Yeah, and I, I want to underscore, I think that I totally... Yeah. I hear this, and it's the fact that we are talking in universities about saving a life is really a dramatic turn. And I've talked to a lot of people in Charlottesville who are really suffering a year later, a year later, people whose lives have been derailed, who've been injured, you know, the death of Heather Hayer. So in some ways, that universities are discussing modes of in, a critical and intellectual engagement under the guise of that and looking at yeah. actually protecting your students' lives. Something here is very that's very dire for a university. We should not be having to worry about our students actually being really harmed. And so, as you said, your colleague, Irvin Shemarinsky, said it's very tricky, but there may be very cautious ways to say the universities can be thoughtful, say its resources have to be deployed for the purposes of education. It actually right. has a mandate, and the courts recognize that. They say the courts will say at some point, well, you cannot just force universities into these no-win situations. 
Right. Yeah, it's very. Right. I mean, I really want to thank you. It's really been. It's such a very thoughtful way of you linking this discussion to the difference between just ideas floating out there and ideas that are backed on empirical research, archival research that are actually linked to what education is supposed to be. And yes. the other point that you've made, which is which I haven't heard as much, which I really like that you said you had this, um, you had empathy for the students, the conservative students who felt there wasn't really a place. And you say there is a way to be heard on a, even a very liberal progressive campus that doesn't go into this other space where it's debasing and demeaning people and challenging their right to exist even. So there's right. a line right there. And I think I would presume most of your students, many all your students at Berkeley, the students probably get that at some point, And the faculty may hopefully also get that. <laughs> right. They do. And actually, when we did a survey, campus has done a survey of our first year students from last year. And the first year's overwhelming majority, like, were so highly and strongly supportive of free speech across the spectrum of some sort. But I think the students are also fierce advocates protecting the principles of community. And I think that's what we have to get our students who bring these, who even consider these kinds of people to come to campuses. And so this is one of the recommendations. Tell us, as a campus for our students, to get them to be thoughtful. We want them to tell us when they start holding events right now about how they think it's going to contribute to the intellectual growth an ethos of the campus, right? And we need to get them to reflect on that. But sometimes I think I think this was a by any means necessary, I'm speculating here, a by any means necessary to be seen, to be visible as a minority. And I don't mean to co-opt that term by any means necessary from the left, but I think that this is what you see sometimes with these young folks who I don't think were being very thoughtful about what they were doing. Um, I think they were they were in their feelings. Right. They were in their feelings of feeling invisible, okay. feeling mi- minoritized. Okay. And I, I think they're also feeling emboldened, too, given the election of President Trump in 2016, because that actually cast certain characters in the national spotlight in a different kind of way. I like this phrase. I've not heard that they were in their feelings. They were coming from a place which is hard to negotiate with because you want to recognize their feelings. Right. But it, it's a very raw space. And it's and you said it's become emboldened in the national discourse that now they feel they they actually the ones who have been marginalized. And Absolutely. They, so yeah. the terms are sort of on both sides being activated and for very different purposes. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to create any kind of false equivalency there because it's I'm not reproducing that because they're not equivalent. I I can do a full analysis on that if I had time. I actually, you know, I may have you back on the podcast at some point because I do think this is an interesting one how terms migrate to the other side. I yes, think, and I've looked at this, you know, suddenly so people feel marginalized, people feel excluded, all this language, and in some ways, you know, you, you refer to this term, you know, this kind of slightly ironic term of snowflakes, it's on all sides. The over- it's energy. right, it's so, right, that's true. But it's interesting that you're saying there is no simple, or there is no equivalency, and it's actually our job as scholars and teachers to sort of parse that and say, this is not the same. Yeah, they're using right. terms to actually confuse and muddle this discussion is not the same to co-opt the status of oppressed minorities for people who are actually empowered and as you said structurally have been empowered for so long is there's no equivalency here Right. right. Which is why I think when we talk about most sets of ideas around social issues in this country, we have to think about the ecosystem, the flow or the genealogy of those ideas. You have to provide context, right? You cannot talk about most of these things without thinking about history. 
without thinking about sociological basis uh, formation. You can't talk about most of these things thinking about the what I call the triple dangerous triumvirate, which are the, the forces of race, class, and gender in our society. You cannot talk about them without contextualizing. And, and so when you have a group of people who actually come, when you look at the grid of perspectives and identities and something, who may be in positions of privilege, and so many of those perspectives, those identity categories, to kind of utter some of the same terminology or some of the same, use some of the same discursive tactics, if it's decontextualized, it's so problematic, in which it often is. It's often decontextualized. So the ecosystems are not the same in terms of the genealogy of ideas. I listened to one of your talks, and I actually recommend to all the listeners to look it up. It's a great talk. I think you gave it at Brown University, perhaps. And you said you wanted to be a historian maybe in another life. You're a sociologist, but actually this historical knowledge that informs your work and to say today's realities are shaped by two things, by the facts of history and the knowledge of history. And those are separate things. They are facts, and you can just, but actually to live those facts as this is an embodied history for everybody in America, I think that's a really important part. Um, I I do want to refer once more to, because listeners are going to, you know, they should look up Keeping It Real School Success Beyond Black and White, which is an analysis of how opportunity and achievement have to be disaggregated, and we have to look at that achievement is not just an abstract measure, but opportunity of education and attainment. And and I really want to thank you, Dean Carter, for taking the time and being so thoughtful about this, what you call the conundrum. What do you think? How do you feel about Berkeley fall 2018? You look forward to a good semester. And what do you so? I think so far so good. We are looking forward to a good semester. I think what's going on in the national scene is really kind of, in some ways, deflecting away from us uh, in many ways. And we're excited about the new cohort of students. We're also excited about the new campaign. We have new signature initiatives that we're thinking about. We're thinking about how to even more deepen our commitment to being a fully inclusive community. We learned from the last two years, and we have an incredible chancellor. I feel so confident by the stability that she's providing to the campus, her wisdom, her experience. It's really creating and cultivating a different kind of climate here. So we, you know, onward, we're going onward. This is all part of the historical fold now, and I hope we've learned our lesson. Yeah, I I really thank you, and I'm going to make sure that on the podcast I link to the commission and to your work as well, so people can explore that further, and I hope to welcome you again at some other point. Thank you so much. I thank you so much, and good luck to you, and thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.